Hello, and welcome back to the Product Launch Podcast. As always, I'm the host, Sean Boyce, CEO and founder of Next Step. I would like to welcome my guest to the show today, David Brimley. David has traveled the world, helping people make sense of low latency, in-memory technology solutions. With 30 years in the IT industry, he began his career as a COBOL programmer before moving into investment banking IT as a Java developer and architect. Today, David is the Chief Product Officer at Hazelcast, where he is helping expand the portfolio from its core in-memory data grid offering to address new use cases such as stream processing, cloud-managed services, and digital integration. Hello, David, how are you? And thanks for being on the show. I'm well, thank you. It's uh, great to be here, Sean. Excellent. Um, so kind of before we dive into the topic that we want to talk about today, it would be great to hear a little bit more from you in terms of your background and how you became the Chief Product Officer at Hazelcast. Oh, okay. Um, well, I would say it's mostly not a very traditional route into product management, um, or at least as, as far as I can tell. But um, as, as the biography at the start, um, you know, uh, told us that I, my background is um, in development. So I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. Um, I, I left school and I went straight, straight to work, uh, working for um, a what was a book club? I don't know if you remember the book clubs from the tw uh, from about twenty years ago, where you used to have to buy a, a book every quarter. Um, but I actually worked for a company that was was selling uh, had that business model, and it was actually mainframe programming, uh, doing writing COBOL programs. Um, so that 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 shows my age. Um, and then I, I progressed from there, and obviously we went through the nineties, and um, I I I'd learned other programming languages, um, and I eventually you know, through complete accident, I live just outside of London. Um, and the, the city of London has a very, very big banking industry um, and with investment banks and, and, you know, equity trading and, and all of these different trading systems. And, and I, I, I thought that seemed like a really exciting place to be. And it was, if you was an IT developer in the nineties and, and the early noughties, um, that, that was a great place to go and learn your craft. Um, so I, I, I got myself various jobs at uh, the investment banks and, and that's generally where I stayed for um, about 15, 15, almost 20 years is, is working in those areas. And I, I, you know, I did various roles from junior programmer and, you know, eventually I became uh, a senior architect. And it was, it was in those days that um, I came into contact with this product category, this technical product category called in-memory data grids. And, and really what they were solving was um, a problem around um, just processing as much data as quickly as possible um, uh, in a low latency manner. And, and if you think about trading systems, you know, that, that's really one of the ways that, you know, you win in this, in this uh, environment is to, to be very, very fast. And, and so I, I built up a, a breadth of experience building these systems for various investment banks. Um, and, and it was at that point that I was contacted by the founder of one of these in-memory data grids. Um, they were looking to expand their business out in London and, you know, that they realized that the investment banks were one of the key, you know, buyers of this technology. And so I, I met, I met the founder in London and we had a chat, um, and, you know, I, I, I took stock. It was kind of a risk to do this because I was in a, you know, kind of a, you know, a very um, well-paid job. It was, it was, it was secure. And, you know, did I, at the age of, I think, uh, 45 at the time, did I want to go off and, and, you know, ditch all of that and 
joined this startup. So it was, it was kind of a scary thing, but I thought, well, you know, why not? I can always maybe go back. And, and so, and so that's how I kind of jumped into this world of startups and, and, you know, software vendors where I'd been a consumer of all of this stuff for so long. And now here I was on the other side of the table. Um, and I was actually, you know, trying, helping to build this stuff, trying to help to sell this stuff. And, um, and that was, that was back in 2014. And in those days I was employee number one in London. So it was, it was a really interesting role actually, because I, I did a bit of everything. I did a bit of sales. I did a bit of, you know, marketing. I was doing product management. I was doing a bit of coding. So it really was in terms of startups, it was, you know, we had people around the world, but it, it was just me. So I'd, you know, it was, it was a real um, career change. And, um, but luckily it's turned out for the best. So I'm, I'm really happy with um, how, how things have turned out. And Hazelcast is a company. Um, if I just say a few words about the company, it's, it's grown, it's grown tremendously. Um, you know, um, we, in, in terms of what we do, we're, we're this in-memory computing platform. So we, we help deliver data to your applications in an extreme low latency way. Um, certainly a lot that people tend to use this technology when they, um, you know, they might be writing their applications and storing their data in traditional databases. Um, there, there's always a business case for getting that data quicker. Um, and, and this is where we come along. Um, and, and, that, and that sort of basic proposition has really resonated around certain industry sectors, as I said, particularly the banks. Um, you know, we, we do business with pretty much every major bank that you can think of around the world, pretty much every major credit card processor. Um, if you're swiping a credit card, chances are somewhere along that transaction route, there's, there's a piece of Hazelcast software involved in that. Um, and when you do some retail banking, um, you know, especially now in the, um, you know, the digital transformation age that we're in where banks are building out more and more of these channels out to their customers, Hazelcast is in there somewhere. So it's a product that you mostly use every day, um, but you don't know it. Um, so, so, you know, we've been, in, we've been incredibly successful. So I'm, I'm pleased I took that leap. For sure. Yeah, it's certainly some fascinating use cases. And I imagine some unique technical challenges associated with the work that you're doing. I remember when for the first time I learned about how like Wall Street in New York, right, the trading hub for North America, for the most part, uh, large parts of the world, that there's fierce competition to get a building depending upon the side of the street that it's on, just because of the physical proximity to the trading platforms and what that can mean in terms of milliseconds and latency. It's just like, it's such a level, it's so many levels deeper than what you might think in terms of, because I have a technical background as well too in like network engineering, but that's at such an extreme level. However, when you multiply it out over however many transactions and how much volume of data, you start to realize what a significant impact that can, that can make and where the, the supply demand kind of economics increases the marketability of the, the value of making a transition like that. So I can only imagine the fascinating problems that you guys are trying to solve at Hazelcast and the, yep. the unique use cases that year from time to time. Yeah, it, it's definitely that, that um, you know, uh, most people, you know, think, you know, as we go about our day-to-day -day business, we think in, in terms of seconds, um, but, and most developers and engineers will know about measuring things in milliseconds. Um, but now we're down to the point in, in trading systems where you're down to 
very very low microseconds if not if not nanoseconds to complete transactions so it, it's definitely in the last 10 years that 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 level of that level of measurement that that you know factor of measurement has has decreased and actually just going back to your your story about the you know moving the buildings close to these these um points on 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 where these these lines coming from the trading systems and being as close as you can physically to the trading venues um there's a story i don't know if you've ever read the, is it flash boys by michael lewis there's a there's a very good book and he goes on to talk about these 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 traders and the extremes they went to build their systems to to win this advantage um, and you meant and one of the stories was that they actually physically located themselves as close as possible but there was a story slightly earlier on in, in the history of all of that where i think it was i was building a fiber optic link between um i think it was the chicago mercantile exchange or, or one of those exchanges in chicago over to over to new york and they actually to save, um, to save and, and, and reduce that latency, they were actually knocking down buildings so that they could have a direct line of sight because believe it or not, fiber optics, when it moves around corners, it actually introduces latency. So they were actually tunneling under train stations, they were, they were buying houses, they were knocking down things, just have a direct, you know, as, as the crow flies, direct line for this fiber optic cable. Um, so that that just goes to tell you that you know the the importance of of speed in today's world. That's fascinating. I had not heard that uh, element yeah. to it before, but when yeah. you start to think about the properties of uh, the different types of medium, that, that makes sense. Certainly does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Certainly takes the story to another level. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so we have a bunch of questions for you, of course, and in particular, what we want to talk about today, right, is uh, among others. Right, building out the product function at your organization. But before we get there, right, this transition from technical to product, which is one that I've made myself as well too, but it's always helpful to have different perspectives on the topic and you know, understand that transition and making it from other professionals like yourself. So there's a couple of things that you've referred to in the stories that you've told so far and the information you've given about your background with regard to the importance of like subject matter expertise, from the environment in which you came as well too, with regard to the industry, right? Going from uh, very high levels of industry and much larger organizations, then down to the startup world. Love to hear more about that. And then also the importance of the technical expertise when it, be, when it comes to being a successful product professional or a product manager. Love to hear more about that. But perhaps first, kind of the, the best place to start uh, initially was, I'd love to learn more about both your how you, what your uh, beliefs or feelings are with regard to the importance of the industry expertise uh, when it comes to, you know, having that and being successful in a product role. And then that transition you made from both technical to product um, and any challenges that you kind of experienced along the way. And, you know, um, if you feel that, you know, you're in the right position to be successful right now in the product role, if that technical expertise helped you or if it presented unique challenges Anyway, love to hear more from you about uh, really both of those topics. I I would say that the, you know, the the real reason why I you know I was hired into this role originally was just because I had that subject matter expertise and the the buying persona for our products were people like me, um, so they hired someone like that person and I, I was used to 
help build out the product and, and, and also sell it, sell it to these people because it wasn't a traditional sales channel that you could use and, and, and sell this stuff. You had to, you had to kind of sell it on a, on a very technical level. Um, and so in, in the early days, it, it was very clear. There was um, the, the company I joined um, was up against maybe one or two incumbent, much larger companies who had a bigger share of the market and were arguably more feature complete at that time in, in terms of their products. And so I, I came into Hazelcast with this perspective of, okay, I can see this wonderful future for Hazelcast, but we're going to need A, B, and C to at least compete in terms of table stakes, right? These are the table stakes features we need. So those early days for me were kind of easy. Um, I, I would, it was just a case of knocking off these things that I knew we had to deliver. Um, I didn't really have to do any research. I didn't, I didn't even really have to talk to many customers because I just knew, uh, because I was a customer in the past, that we needed these things. And so those earlier years for me were, were very, very easy. Um, I would say, actually, things have gotten harder in the last couple of years in terms of my role. Um, and, and that's because of two things. Um, one, we became feature complete as in, within this in-memory data grid category. Um, so we'd done all we could do pretty much in that category. And I'd exhausted my subject matter expertise in that area. And so I found myself in a position about two years ago where we knew we wanted to, you know, move our products to address new use cases that I didn't necessarily have, you know, business expertise in. Um, and, you know, and, and how, do we, how do we go about deciding what, what we did? And this is where I found myself at that point where I, I was, I had to really at that point learn how to become a, 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 a product manager um, because I didn't, you know, I was going through these first couple of years and I was thinking, well, this product management stuff's a breeze, you know, I don't know why everyone's complaining about everything. It's, you know, we just, we just have to do these things here. And, um, but, but, you know, since then I've, dis I've discovered this whole, um, you know, this whole amount of stuff that I had to learn about, about product management because I'd, I'd never been formally trained as a product manager. I was, I was an engineer and an architect and, you know, I was a, a highly technical person, but I'd never, I'd never from scratch tried to decide, you know, how we invest, you know, all of these millions of dollars of R&D budget into building something. Uh, something new potentially and so and so this is when I had to start training myself you know I read various books about how to be a product manager and you know how do you find out what your customers really need you know the eternal question you know how do you how do you build something people want to want to pay you money for um, and, and so yeah that, that period I would say over the last two to three years has been that's where the learning curve for me really kicked in um, and there was something unique about our organization as well that um, was interesting. Um, we're, we're very, internally, we're very techni technically heavy. We have a, a lot of developers um, they're, and they're very, very, this is a very brilliant, I, I love this environment where our engineers are um, very vocal in, in how they think the product should, you know, the direction the product should be going in so you get this very very loud feedback from from the from the internal engineers as well and um something i had to learn was that 
it's not enough just to talk to customers um, and look at the market and try to find you know product market fit try to maybe find a niche um, with some unique selling points for your product but so so that's only part of the battle and I, I learned that um, through a, through a couple of false starts in this area I learned that um, actually you have to evangelize internally very very heavily your your product vision as well um, you, you really have to win the buy-in of everyone in the organization so that we're all together and you're executing as one um, that that was a that was a hard learned lesson for me I think um, and I'm still learning it I mean I I, I look back on my you know I, I, when I work and I think well actually you know maybe we could have changed something here and so I'm I'm in you know you can tell I'm in a fairly late stage in my career but I, I'm learning a whole new discipline it, it's it's been a it's been a, a really interesting interesting um, uh, couple of years yeah, it's a really fascinating perspective and it certainly makes sense I think a lot of people think about a lot of people think about making a transition into product or other people try to do so as well too. Um, I'm one of them as well, coming from more of a technical background and then getting closer to the customer and understanding these problem spaces and really opening up my eyes and experience to all these other various functional groups of a product organization and the importance that that role fulfills was um, enlightening to me and uh, very engaging as well too. But it also, it sounds like, like you went through these gyrations as well too. It let me know where the gaps were in my abilities and skills. And I had to learn these other disciplines as you've articulated well also, which is I need to get buy-in from these stakeholders to understand what is going, what motivates them and what do they need as well too. And then that falls typically on the shoulders of the product manager. So that being a important, like critical aspect to the work that you're expected to do to really move the needle for the organization. Whereas previously, our technical worlds were more siloed. Exactly. You did a, yeah, you did a great job of articulating that. Yeah, I, I think if you if you contrast it to, to where I've come from, where you you worked in a you know as an architect or developer, you you generally get there would be some kind of business owner above you, and they would say we need X, Y, and Z. So the product, if you think about it from a product perspective, the product decision was already made for you. They so they're just telling you what you need to build. Um, and you go off and build it and, and nobody really questions it because, you know, you're getting paid for it. I'll build it for you. Okay. Um, but now it's, it's, you're, you're, you're in this position of where you have to, you, no one's telling you what to build. You have to decide yourself. And, and that's kind of a scary prospect. Yeah, certainly plenty of additional responsibility mm. there. And especially coming from a technical role where, any question that you have, you can pretty much get answered in terms of what your expectations are. As a product professional, oftentimes you have to set the guidelines there for what we're doing and when and why, and then communicate them throughout the organization. And oftentimes, you know, there are some assumptions, but part of that role also is to validate those assumptions as much as possible with data. And it sounds like based on your expertise, the subject matter expertise you had from in industry have prepared you actually quite well to make more of a seamless transition from technical to product because you understood the problem space incredibly well at that given point in time. But then as you also articulated, as you moved forward and as the, you know, both the product and the market evolved and you were no longer, you know, constantly in industry, 
then you said that's when some of the challenges started to present themselves in terms of, okay, I, I haven't been here before in industry. Now we're like charting in, into like uncharted waters, if you will, or new territory. So I'd love to hear if you talk a little bit more about that as well too, where it sounds like number one, the expert level subject matter expertise in industry can actually help you make a transition from technical to product. So I think that's a big takeaway. But number two is once you start to get, reach the bounds of your area of subject matter expertise in industry, how do you recapture that? Like what was your process like for, you know, understanding, okay, now I need to go get this information uh, because it was so critical in the work that we did previously. And then what does your process look like for updating that moving forward? Yeah, it is. It's a, that it, it's, it's a very important point and, and you're right. It, I think it would, technical people can make that move into product management, but you do have to be aware that that subject matter expertise you brought with you that helps make that seamless transition. It will erode over time because things move on. And um, obviously you're not it down in the trenches on a day-to-day -day basis building these things anymore, which gave you that subject matter expertise. So, so, so what, what happened to me was, um, the, the, the easiest way or the, the, the way there was a number of ways I tried to get back in touch with what's going on on, on the ground. Um, and, and, and there are a number of things you can do. I mean, I had a great network of people I worked with over the last 20 years. Um, and so, you know, I would absolutely say when you do make this transition, maintain that network. Don't, don't leave all those people behind. Um, and so they're, they're a great resource. You can talk to them and, um, you know, go out for coffee with them, ask them, you know, what they're up to, what are the big, you know, things they're working on at the moment. Um, and so that, so that was one way I kind of used to sniff out what was the, what was the new direction we needed to take. Um, and then you do have to continually keep up to date with, um, especially from a technical perspective, we're still a highly technical product. Um, you know, there, there's there's all kinds of white papers you have to keep reading, um, you know, you, you, YouTube videos. And now, actually now, um, one of the, if you can call it a benefit of the world situation we're in, all of these conferences are online now. So I, I can attend as many of these conferences as I can stand to sit through and watch on, on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, so, so that, that, that was another important thing. But the most important thing by far, and this seems entirely obvious to me today, but I didn't realize it at the time, was um, cultivate and maintain customer relationships. Get to know your customers on a high, you know, as personal a level as you can so that, so that they open up to you um, and they'll talk to you as well. Um, I, I think part of the problem I had was that, um, you know, in those early days, I said to myself, well, why do I need to talk to customers? I've been the customer for all this time. I know what we need. Um, and I was kind of a bit flippant about maintaining this portfolio of customer contacts. Um, and I'm sure you've got a lot of product managers on this call now that are aghast at what I'm saying and, you know, thinking I'm a bad professional, but at the time it didn't seem, it didn't seem necessary to me. Um, and now I'm realizing that um, you can't just turn on this tap of customer engagement is something you have to curate and nurture and build. And, and so that's what I've been trying to do over the last couple of years um, is, you know, building these contacts. And it's, it's a hard thing to keep those customer contacts because 
people leave companies, people move to new jobs. So, um, it, you know, it, it kind of dawned on me that you do need to spend, you know, at least half of your day every day trying to nurture those contacts and and and, and build up those, that that customer that customer liaison and it doesn't happen overnight you know you can't just send an email blast to everyone on your customer database and say can we have a call because chances are you most really won't get anyone return any anyone say uh, return on any of that so um i think that's been the biggest thing that that's the biggest thing you need to maintain to keep your nose to the ground in terms of industry trends i, I honestly really could not have said that better myself and i say it yeah. all the time it's interesting how you've articulated it so similarly to typically how I have in that what I typically recommend uh, for aspiring product professionals is you need to spend upwards of half, really half of your time interacting with building these customer relationships, fostering them, making sure they're healthy. Because like you said, there are respective challenges to doing that and it isn't a switch you can flip. So that's something you need to build momentum to and then you need to maintain just like a network, which I think is another great point that you made in terms of staying on top of the subject matter expertise, right? If you had it and you had connections that you worked with previously that are very close to being in that world all day, every day, then what better relationships to continue to remain healthy and be able to understand, you know, not just where we are, but where we're going, which is part of it as well too. So now I think you've articulated incredibly well. And uh, David, I, I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing your expertise with both myself and our audience. It's incredibly helpful for, all product managers, um, but especially those aspiring and those looking to get into product or make a transition from somewhere like technical, like both you and I have had. And I think the other piece that I would mention as well too, that is really um, important to note about this case is though, even though the products that you build and for the world in which you build them are highly, highly technical and very subtle and subtly nuanced into a very critical component that is, um, you know, very unique to a particular industry, a lot of the same philosophies still apply when it comes to doing product management properly, like staying in close communication with your network of subject matter experts and continuing to build and foster those customer relationships. Um, so I only have uh, two questions for you before we let you go. The first one is, and you mentioned a few of them already, but what resources would you share with the audience where they can go to learn more about either yourself, Hazelcast, uh, the subject matter that we talked about today? I know you also mentioned uh, as you started to dive into the world that is product, you you know were reading a bunch of books. Love to hear about some of those as well too, or really any resources that you recommend that the audience go to learn more. Sure. Okay. So so first of all, with Hazelcast, um, we're uh, primarily an open source product, and we, and we sell a uh, well, we're an open source project, I should say, and we sell uh, an enterprise product. So if you want to learn more about in-memory data grid stream processing engines, um, you can go along to hazelcast.com. Um, um, and you can also visit hostcast.org, which is the home of the open source product. And on that website, you'll be able to download our software, use it for free. And there's a whole bunch of white papers and tutorials and, and videos you can, you can uh, watch. So um, please, please go along and do that. Um, and then if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at dbrimley. That's B-R-I-M-L-E-Y uh, um, at dbrimley. So I, I tweet uh, uh, there and it's mainly about distributed systems and um, you know quite low-level technical stuff. I tend not to tweet so much about product management, but I'm thinking now that you know this has kind of piqued my interest in just talking about the these you know my experiences. So I think I might just tweet a bit more about product management there as well. Um, and, and then in terms of books, um, actually 
there, there's a number of there's a number of books I've been reading. Um, do you want to start over again? Sorry. When do you want to yeah, start let, from? Let me yeah, know. Yeah. Let me just get these names. Sure. Um, Take your time. Uh, just let me know when you want to go, and then I'll just shut up and you can yeah, you can talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So I, I've got three books here um, that I, I can just recommend. So let's start. Go for it. Okay. So um, as I was learning my way around this product management discipline, you always try to read the, I guess what people you know, say are the classics of, of that area. Um, so I hope I'm not being too controversial in calling this a classic, but um, my CEO, he came from a product background and he suggested I read some of the works of Clayton Christensen. Um, so um, there was the book I've, I've read maybe about six months ago, Competing Against Luck. Um, it's kind of some of the stories are quite old, but it really talks about, you know, the, the jobs to be done idea, right? Where you, where you try to not talk about the technology, not, not, not get too involved in products, just to, just listen to your customers and, and just ask them what, what are they trying to do at a, a high level. And um, I think this goes back to the, um, one of the questions that I actually just realized I didn't answer was, do you think that, uh, you know, technical expertise is important in a product manager? And um, I would say, yes, it can help, but more so the biggest skill you need to do is to be able to, is to learn that job to be done and ask the right questions. And, and you don't need a technical skill to, to, to get someone to articulate you, um, their job to be done. Um, so, so you don't, you know, you can still be a very, very good product manager just with that, with that skill. Um, so that, that taught me a lot about how to talk to customers because, um, you know, in the early days when I suddenly realized I had to talk to customers, I was, I was acting like a, a developer or an engineer and I was going way too low, um, and, and technical and asking them, you know, do they need this API or do they need this technical feature? And, and it came as a revelation to me, well, no, you don't ask those questions. You, you talk to them in the round at a, a much broader and higher level about what are the problems they're trying to solve. And so that book really, really helped me with that. And then there's another book, um, Playing to Win, which is by A.G. AG Laffey. Um, I hope I've got that right. Um, that kind of builds on, on, that, on that, you know, that idea, but... but um, it, it, it kind of it kind of um, it gives you a lot more lower level detail. So in terms of chrono, you know, the order of reading these things, definitely the Christensen books first, and then and then playing to win after, and then going back to the the question, you know, when I said earlier about you know I didn't realise I had to bring along the entire organisation with me as well and evangelise these things. Um, there was a very good book I read called How to Lead in Product Management, and that was by Roman Pilcher. And, and, and Roman talks in his book about, you know, how you influence people in your organization, how you, um, how you make decisions and how you decide to move forward. Um, there's this, you know, he talks about, you know, how you could do consensus built, you know, consensus led decisions and, and how you agree, come to agreement. Um, I'm sure there's, um, everyone has heard of this term, um, uh, disagree and commit, I think, or there's, there's some variation of that. Um, and I kind of wasn't very, I wasn't kind of very turned on to that. I, I, my, my nature is I really want everyone to truly believe in this vision. So, so we kind of worked our ways around how you build consensus, but, but that book was, was very interesting. So I would recommend that if you, if you're a consensus led product manager, 
um, that that book is is very interesting. Um outstanding options, I will say, and huge fan, obviously, as well, too, of the Jobs to be Done framework. So hmm. thank you for mentioning those resources. We'll link to them in the show notes. And I know you had mentioned um, the opportunity to follow you on Twitter. The last question I was going to ask is, who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Um, so so just, just follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I'm interested in talking to two groups of people, really. I'm, I'm interested to talk in talking to product managers, who, who want to share ideas, especially if you're in the technical realm. Um, I, I welcome any kind of conversation, so you can follow me and, and we, can, we can direct message um, over Twitter. And then any, any technical people who are watching who uh, are using in-memory data grids um, or want to learn more about those types of things, please, you can also follow me and I can, uh, we can talk over Twitter. Thank you for providing that, David. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And thank you for being here and sharing your incredible experience uh, with both myself and our audience. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Product Launch Podcast powered by Next Step. If you or anyone you know is involved in scaling a B2B SaaS business, please have them reach out to me about becoming a potential guest on our show. They can email me at sean at nextstep.io. That's S-E-A-N at N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io. This time, we'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our show, Next Step Consulting. Would you like to know what the right next steps are for your B2B SaaS business? Are you trying to grow and scale, but you're stuck? We can help. To find out how Next Step can help your B2B SaaS business achieve its goals, please email me, sean at nextstep.io. That's S-E-A-N at N-X-T-S-T-E-P.io. Thanks, and keep disrupting. Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.